You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbondatoz, and you can find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where N is for Never Say Never Again, the 1983 James Bond film starring Sean Connery in his final movie outing as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we take a look at the second Bond film not produced by Eon is the man I will put in my memoirs as number one. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And making his final-ish outing on the podcast before we send him off to the health clinic to get rid of his free radicals is Mr. Tom Wheatley. Hello there. This is a big one, guys. We've teased it many, many times, but we're finally going to cover the the 54-year saga of Kevin McClory, who I would say is the biggest enemy the Bond movie's ever faced um, throughout its uh, history. It's the big one, right? Certainly the culmination of a very, very long and interesting series of events. It's the, I mean, it's got to be the biggest behind-the-scenes stories about the making of the film, and it, it basically casts a shadow over the movie's um, from the basically the day that Thunderball was published, right, right up until the release of Spectre in 2015. So um, it's a big, mm. big, long story. Um, the saga behind Never Say Never Again, mm. but H- huge repercussions, huge repercussions. Yeah. yeah. But um, I just wanted to, before we dive into it, I wanted to just sort of mention something that it's it's easy to forget is that um, it was a big deal. Uh, uh, Sean Connery coming back at this point um, to James Bond. It had been a while since he'd been, what was it, 11 years since he'd been in um, Diamonds Are Forever, 12 years. Um, And it was, at the time, you know, it was a huge deal. There's no no parallels to it in in pop culture, I don't think, Um, where, you know, you've got the ability to make another film 
with the same characters and the same actor, but it not be linked to the other ones. It's very, it's, it's an interesting case. But Rog, uh, Roger Ebert at the time said there were, um, it's a small, it was showbiz miracles that never happened. There was never a Beatles reunion. Bob Dylan and Joan Byers didn't appear on the same stage anymore. But here, by God, is Sean Connery as Sir James Bond. Good work, 007. So, uh, yeah, thought that was interesting. Um, mm. Before we dive into the making of, I thought I'd just do a quick synopsis. So an ageing James Bond makes an uncharacteristic mistake during a routine training mission, leading M to believe that the legendary British spy is now past his prime. M suspends Bond from active duty. However, when Spectre member Fatima Blush and her fellow terrorists successfully steal two nuclear missiles from the US military, M must reinstate Bond as he is the only agent who can beat Spectre at their own game of espionage. So, yes, worth mentioning, this is a remake of Thunderball, the 1965 James Bond film. So why don't we kick off there and, and, and sort of talk about how Kevin McClory got involved with Thunderball in the first place? Well take you all the way back to 1958 when Ian Fleming was working with independent film producer Kevin McClory and scriptwriter Jack Whittingham on a potential Bond film. The title for this was Longitude 78 West. What do you think of that title? Dreadful. Yeah, I think if they released one now, it's quite it's quite clunky. I looked down. I the... like it. Do you? <laughs> of course you do. Yeah. Uh. Interesting. Start sparks some ideas in my head of what it could be about. Yeah. Well, do, you, do you know any of the countries that fall through uh, longitude seventy eight west on the on the no, map? I've got a clue. I'd love. I'd love to know. I'd love to watch the film and find out. Well, you can't. <laughs> but <laughs> shame, ja- Jamaica is one of them. Right. I'm but, sure they'll make it at some yeah. point. So yeah, it was originally planned to be produced by Xanadu Productions, and this was a company set up by Ian Fleming, Kevin McClory, Jack Whittingham, and Ernie Cuneo. But they struggled to get the funding, and then the producers, Ernie Cuneo and Ivor Bryce, they pulled out of the production. So even though it's unproduced, the story from the script then went on to be used by Ian Fleming in his book, Thunderball. And this is where the problems begin, because he didn't credit either of the other two that helped him, either McClory or Whittingham. And then I think we covered in the Doctor No episode that Thunderball was intended to be the first Eon James Bond film. But due to the these ongoing issues that would stem from that, that novel that Fleming wrote, uh, that wasn't the case. And the script of this, a script of Longitude 78 West was actually sold at auction for €11,000 in 2013. So it's it's still out there. Interesting that Fleming turned it into a book. He'd... Uh... Because he had done that before. I'm just trying to think. It was um, Moonraker, one we covered recently, that had started yes. out an idea for a, as a script, hadn't it? And he just turned it into a book. So I imagine he didn't really think he was doing t- anything too out of the ordinary yeah. when, he, when he wrote Thunderball. Well, the difference is he wrote the Moonraker screenplay, didn't he? Yeah. O- on his own. So this, it's. I, I think it all does stem from the fact he wasn't uh, acknowledging the other two writers. Yeah. Um, but who is Kevin McClory? Good question. It's actually quite quite an interesting one because Kevin McClure is one of these people that is so intrinsically linked to the Bond series, but I think most people that probably hear about him know very little about who he actually was. He's basically famous because of Thunderball and legal battles about Thunderball, which doesn't really give you much information on who he actually was running up to that point. He was fairly prolific and uh, fairly... He did a lot of stuff 
uh, in his early years. He was a, a screenwriter, Irish screenwriter, producer. He was a director. And apparently uh, his ancestry goes back to the uh, Brontes, I found out, which is interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was ob- obviously he was in the Second World War, as everyone who was in the earlier Bond films um, w- was involved. He was a radio officer and he actually saw a few attacks by German U-boats. So saw some action in the war. His, his film career began around, um, well, he's working at Shepton Studios and he was a boom operator. He worked with Warwick Films on the Cockleshell Heroes. So already he's started to get that link into the, the Bond world. He's, he's done some quite amazing stuff really. He was an assistant to John Huston on The African Queen and Moulin Rouge. Um, he worked on Moby Dick as, as assistant director for Houston and then worked on Around the World in 80 Days in 1956 as a second unit director and associate producer. So he's worked on some pretty cool stuff. Apparently he's also he was also romantically involved with Liz Taylor and that caused some issues because um, her... I can't remember who it was. She was in a relationship with somebody else and there was a few issues along the way with that. So there were some Hollywood stories that covered that. And also he led an expedition um, of 25 chaps to drive around the world and there was a documentary called one road um which covers that that attempt um and it was ford it was a ford supported uh expedition so he did a lot of adverts and stuff for them so at that time he was pretty famous he was a pretty big deal he's just uh, this stuff hasn't really stood the test of time from what we know from him now obviously getting involved in the film world he was um Worked with uh, Ian Fleming on the Thunderball script, the original Thunderball script. Yeah, I think he was working on a film called The Bo- Boy in the Bridge, Boy on the Bridge, and that was. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was the film that was that it sort of linked them together. I think it was Ivor Bryce had introduced them, and um, yeah, yeah, it was because that he had directed this film. It felt like Ian Fleming felt like this was a guy who could make films, who could who could get these things done, and that's how he was brought in. But. Um, he was quite a famous, like you say, quite a famous society guy at the time. Um, just as famous as uh, Fleming and, and what have you. Um, always mm. in the newspapers. Um, uh, and he ha- apparently I learned that he, he roomed with Guy Hamilton as well at one point. Oh, um, really? So, yeah, he knew he knew a lot of different people. Uh, but, yeah, that's how he got involved. So, yeah, like I said, I mean, when Fleming went to write the book uh, Thunderball, he'd, he, he, he'd done... Um, turning scripts and other ideas into books before on um, Moonraker and Free, Free All Rise Only. So he probably didn't think he was doing that much harm. Um, and so Thunderball was written and was slated for release in March 1961. But Kevin McClory somehow got sent a copy of the book. Um, didn't know that it was related to the, the, the scripts that he'd been working on at the time, um, but realised what was happening and um, basically contacted his lawyer, this guy called Peter Carter Ruck, who took a uh, who who then took an tried to take an injunction out to stop the book from being published? Um, so they took Fleming and the publisher Jonathan Cape to court, um, but this uh, attempt at putting an injunction on the book was was thrown out because the defence hadn't been given enough time to stop the publication. It was very much it was printed and ready to go to uh, to the shops. So the judge said that the book should be published. So after that, in 1963, after the release of Doctor No and, and From Russia With Love had happened. Um, the case of Kevin McClory and Jack Whittingham suing Ian Fleming for plagiarism ended up going to court. Uh, Jack Whittingham pulled out um, not long after it started because of the finance, uh, the cost of, of taking someone to court over these sorts of things. So it's interesting, really, that this sort of thing 
really should never have gone to court. This is the sort of thing that happens quite a lot and they should have settled it out of court. But Ivor Bryce was bankrolling Ian Fleming and Kevin McClory's uh, rich family and his wife were bankrolling him. He could sense that there was money to be made here. And so he decided to take it all the way. Um, and it was a decision that would cost uh, Ian Fleming dearly. Um, so uh, McClory, by the time it had gone to court or was going to court, he was already talking about making a rival James Bond film at this stage. And he even knew Sean Connery and, you know, had had conversations about maybe tempting him away. But so the trial then took place at the High Court in London in November 1963. It was very highly talked about in the press. Um, went on for nine days, but in the end, Kevin McClory and Fleming decided to settle. So this happened very, very last minute, apparently. They were in the ninth day of, of the hearing, and all of a sudden the, the case stopped. The judge said that they wanted to meet uh, either side together. And this is from um, Andrew Lysett's book about Ian Fleming. He said, 14 people, counting the lawyers, were crammed like school children into a smallish room with no table, only chairs set in a circle around the edge. In less than 10 minutes, they had agreed in principle to come to terms, the details of which were thrashed out later. So the details of the, um, uh, of the settlement were that Ian Fleming could retain the rights to the books as long as he gave... Um, in, uh, McClory and Whittingham uh, credit within the book so based on uh, ideas from these two guys and then McClory would then um, get the film and television rights to Thunderball. Uh, McClory is also awarded £35,000 plus court costs. As to why they settled uh, it's not really very clear but uh, there was mounting costs involved uh, and and Cubby and Harry, in fact, had even got involved at this stage and they had offered to underwrite the cost of the of continuing the case for a further fortnight. Um, they were obviously wanted to keep the bond rights out of someone else's hands. But uh, obviously that didn't happen. Um, so there were 10 scripts in all that Kevin McClory then claimed uh, ownership of. Um, and it was during this trial that Fleming had some heart attacks, a couple of heart attacks. And he later died then in 1964. So Richard Maybaum had written a script for Thunderball in 1961, but they couldn't make it because of the legal dispute, as mentioned. And then after after that, uh, the, the the idea that McClory was exploring was to make Thunderball with Richard Burton. Um, so that was that was what he was hoping to do, but that didn't happen. In the end, they came to an agreement uh, in 1965 to produce Thunderball together. Um, and we'll do more on Thunderball when we get to, to that letter. But part of that agreement was that Kevin McClory would ag agree to not remake it for at least 10 years after the first domestic release of Thunderball, which was in January 1966. And it's interesting that Cubby and Harry agreed to this because it seemed, must have seemed fairly low risk to them at the time. I mean, the franchise had never gone on that long before. So... They thought that, you know, by that stage, they wouldn't be making James Bond films anymore. So um, but McClory thought that there would still be interest um, in Bond by that stage. So in 1976, McClory exercised his rights to remake Thunderball as he was legally allowed to in the agreement that he had made with Ian Fleming back in court in 1963. So, I mean, it's worth saying at this point that never say never again is they, they people say it's unofficial but it is official they had the rights to make it um all legal rights he had to make this film so um 
it's just not considered canon in the Eon canon. Yeah, it's amazing that he had the foresight that to, mm. to see that it, the the franchise would be carrying on. Then, you know, you would have thought with the success of the the first couple of films, they would have thought well, there's a chance this might go on longer than ten years. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite amazing. Yeah, so that deal uh, was went through. He then has the rights. The rights are in his hands again. Um, and he embarks on creating another <coughs> another film, this time with the title James Bond of the Secret Service. This was McClory getting back into the Bond game, as you put it. And I've, I've got here as well that he, he hopes... He wanted Richard Attenborough to direct and he wanted Richard Burton as Bond. So... I assume he just still wanted Richard Burton from before. Yeah, must have done. I think he was someone that he was definitely interested in in, in getting to play at. Yeah, and he wanted Orson Welles as Blofeld as well. But in what was an amazing development, Sean Connery was brought on board to come and help write the script. So obviously by this point, Connery's been gone for four or five years from uh, from the franchise. He's got Len, Len Dayton, who he wrote the Ipcris file. He got him on board. Um, he was a big fan of his writing. He said, well, Len was an obvious choice. One other Bond novel had been written by Kingsley Amis, but I don't think that worked quite well. He's a good writer, but Len Dayton I've always liked as a thriller li- uh, thriller writer. And then he, so he got him on board and he, and he said to Len, I'd like to bring Sean in because he wanted the humour that... Connery can deliver. Interesting because he'd never written anything before, so they decided to bring him on board. But um, apparently, it worked in terms of them working together. He went and had a word with Sean, said, "Do you want to come write with us?" He said, "Yeah," um, and they made an arrangement. So um, they were just working in Ireland or Mar- Marbella. They'd go all over and they'd just write together. Um, so, in terms of the actual script, they came up with it. Basically, it involves weaponized robotic sharks that's fine that's fine normal (laughs) yeah really normal and then obviously at the end you see bond he's battling one of the robot sharks in a sewer in manhattan i mean does that sound bondian at all sounds very never say never again (laughs) that's james bond jr Uh, connery at this point he um didn't think he would play a part in in terms of acting in it and he said st- he said in an interview when i first worked on the script with len i had no thought of actually being in the film so yeah with with that script in mind it d- did take a a title change it went from james bond of the secret service um and changed to warhead and that was because of the similarities between honor majesty secret service they wanted to sort of step away from that it's interesting that um Sean Connery saying he doesn't have an interest in acting in it, but surely the reason that Connery's brought on is because that's the key to getting the film made, mm. yeah. Is, yeah. is Connery's involvement, because really there's no way of getting this movie made without having Sean Connery on board. No one's going to touch it. No one's going to invest no. their money in it um, without yeah. Sean Connery, because why would you Why would you pay to have a Richard Burton um, Bond film made? Yeah. Um, yeah. And Connery's there. He's right there. Well, yeah, and written yeah, by Connery. Connery. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they they definitely... They weren't just using him to say he's a writer on it. They probably just meant, said, oh, John Connery's involved. Involved. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. 
But I mean, writing, uh, right? Okay. Uh, a lot of his one-liners are in the early films, didn't he? Mm. So, um, but yeah, it takes more than can't, one-liners. To can't write get a, a man on for one-liners though. No. Um, I read some interesting stuff about that script. I think apparently it was quite. You, you can kind of get the idea from it that it's quite Austin Powers style. It's quite spoofy. It, and Austin Powers almost covers the same things as that script does, like the robot sharks and stuff. It's almost a parody of Never Say Never Again, or well, the Warhead script uh, originally. Um, but yeah, eventually. Um, oh, yeah, and they had they had some weird character names in it. They had a a, a female character called Justin Love Loves It, which I think has in the script. It's got um, it's, John Bond says, "Oh, does she?" Wasn't Roger Moore? I don't know. I did it was Roger Moore. <laughs> um, but yeah, bit of a bit of bit of a mess. Um, but at, at the same time, um, they were Eon were, were about to make Spy Who Loved Me, which is obviously heavily set underwater, and there were certain links between the two films. So obviously, the, you know, you can't two Bond films be made at the same time that are heavily focused on water-based activity. Um, it sparks up a few uh, ruffles, a few feathers. If, if you will, um, so that that caused a few problems in the making of it. So Paramount were uh, they took on the project um, and they were they were going to make it. They 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 were you know they they got Sean Connery people involved. It was it was it was going to happen, um, but partly because of this spy who loved me stuff as well, things started to get a little bit messy. And it was really McClory who who kicked it off. He he didn't want them to make the spy who loved me while he was making this because he felt like the spy who loved me was almost copying what he was doing because of all this underwater stuff so he actually took out an injunction against eon at the time but apparently eon had had also taken out an injunction against uh warhead as well so it, it was getting quite messy um and they were both claiming that each other had stolen the material from them um so because of that there was this legal battle going on and Connery and Paramount just pulled out of it because they just didn't want to be involved in this in this legal battle. Um, so obviously Spy Love Me went ahead and then that was the end of uh, Warhead or the start of the end of Warhead. Yeah, in- interesting as well that I learned that both McClory and Cubby Broccoli had been to this uh, expo where they'd seen this thing called Aquapolis, which was this underwater city and that's why they were both working towards this idea of having an underwater city uh, in it. Um, and that's why Aquapolis um, Aquapolis yeah that sounds awful yeah but yeah I mean it's just um, it's all this litigation there's no studio is going to back this movie Um, and so yeah and I think at this point also Connery starts to back off a little bit as well Um, you've got to imagine that this is this isn't the first time this has happened so they're probably looking at this going oh god no not again yeah we, we took a chance on this and then we can't go we, like that. That went. It was probably in the newspapers for about two years, wasn't it? The old Thunderball stuff. Yeah. So looking back on that, going, we can't get involved in this. It's just not worth it. Um, so yeah, no studio would touch it uh, due to the litigation. But the film found an unlikely hero uh, in the shape of a guy called Jack Schwartzman, who is an entertainment lawyer. Um, he later married uh, Francis Ford Coppola's sister Talia Shire, um, and he's the father of Jason Schwartzman the actor so i thought that was quite interesting anyway he was the executive at a company that turned down warhead um 
but he he could see a way so somehow he could see his his way through the legal issues he could see a way to make the movie with kevin mcclory so he left his job uh the film company and went and set up talia film um and he met with kevin mcclory and they agreed a deal to option the rights um in 1981 so one of the m- many legal blockers um, that the film was facing was that McClory's previous versions, James Bond and the Secret Service, Warhead, they just deviated so far from the original Thunderball scripts that the argument was that they're not they're making a sequel. They're not remaking what the rights, uh, the stuff that they've got the rights to. So the decision was made to go back to basics and remake Thunderball as they had the rights to do. So Schwarzman became the producer and he was developing a screenplay uh, and then at the same time raising funds. And he managed to raise $30 million uh, from banks and distributors around the world, um, including Warner Brothers, who would act as the general distributor to the film. And he said that he'd gone to lots of different places because he felt that the legal issues wouldn't they wouldn't be able to go after every single person who'd invested money in it. Um, they, by spreading the money out, that they felt that they were say on safer ground that way. So that's quite an interesting um, way of doing it. Um, they, uh, McClory claims to have offered um, uh, Kirby Broccoli the chance to present the film as they had done with Thunderball, but apparently he turned it down. Um, but uh, Dan Jack and Eon apparently wished him well. And he said, they also said that if I went outside my rights, they would do everything in their power to protect themselves. Um, So there's a guy at Warner Brothers was retained um, as executive consultant, a guy called John Calley, and he'll come up later in the story. Um, But they left the Dayton Connery script behind and hired someone called Julian Plowden to write the screenplay. And then Lorenzo, Lorenzo Semple Jr. was hired. Does that name ring a bell? Very much so. He'd written uh, or worked on the script for 1967's Casino Royale. Mm. Um, And it was his decision to make Bond play his age. And Connery at the time was 52. Um, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet also were brought on to do rewrites. They were hired to do a week, 10 days, but they ended up staying on the whole uh, production. Um, It was their idea to do the pre-title sequence as a training uh, training, uh, scene. um, Because apparently in the original script... The pre-title sequence was set in a medieval jousting tournament and Bond was only revealed at the end when he lifted up his helmet and was revealed to be Bond. But, I mean, that's just one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. Um, So uh, Clement and Lafrenet stayed on the film then throughout. They actually just were kept on board to keep things going. Um, And they were the ones that also brought in Rowan Atkinson's character as well. Um, but Lorenzo Semple Jr. is the sole writing uh, credit on the movie. Um, but yeah, it's finally coming together. They've got a script and they've got the funding. They just need the cast now. Indeed. So to get Connery back on board to play Bond. Right. So I've got a f- couple of figures here. It's either three million dollars or five million dollars. He had casting approval, script approval, and 15% share of the profits. So, you know, it's a, it's a huge deal, um, but it would need to be to get Connery back. W- why would Connery come back and do this? Well, if, there are many reasons. He, he's gone on record to say, um, he said, it's really dense in terms of the story, the subplot, and texture. It's like a detective story. 
and I have to take quite a bit of responsibility for that. Um, so very, very much leaning on that script approval he's got, he's able to give input on what sort of film he wants to make. Um, and he also said, because I insisted that they go back to that sort of movie if we're going to do it, which I suppose is a certain kind of nostalgia on my part. So again, he's tapping into you know, his youth, you know, the, the role that made him who he is. He said, to say no to all uh, wasn't that difficult to me because I wanted to do different things. To say yes to Never Say Never Again wasn't as definite. It came out of a series of situations. My wife had said, why don't you do it again? I thought about it and it didn't seem like such a crazy idea. Um, so obviously he's been he's been involved in the previous project, James Bond of the Secret Service. So, you know, he's, he's sort of, it makes sense for him to you know, finish the project. But also, did he do it to get revenge on Eon? You know, because he feels like he was, go back to the Sean Connery episode, but he... Um, he always felt like he was cheated out of being involved in a bigger way on the Eon films, didn't he? You know, he wanted to. He wanted to. He wanted to be a producer. He wanted to. Um, he wanted his name on on the films uh, more more than they were. So eventually, that led to him walking away. So yeah, he's back playing James Bond, the main villain in the film, who is Maximilian Largo, uh, was suggested by Connery. So part of Connery's deal was. Getting getting the talent on board, so he suggested Klaus Maria Brandauer. Um, he'd seen him in the in a Hungarian film Mephisto, and just wanted him on board. Uh, Max von Sydow as Ernst Stavro Blofeld. See Blofeld episode for more. Irvin <laughs> um, Kirshner he he picked uh, Barbara Carrera to play Fatima Blush. Uh, and the name that the the character name is actually from one of the early scripts of Thunderball, but I have to say, I think she is fantastic. She is the um, best thing in the movie, yeah, by a long shot. The scene where she's coming down the stairs. Do you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of Jack Nicholson's Joker. It just had a bit yeah. of that sort of. She's having a the lot co- of fun with that role, and the costumes as well. The costumes are, are excellent. Yeah, um, well, her performance actually earned her a Golden Globe nomination. For best supporting actress, yeah. Sean's wife, Michelin, um, she met Kim Basinger at a hotel in London and just suggested, you know, why not use her? So she plays Domino in what is her, I think it's her first role, isn't it? Yeah, it could be. It's It's a very early role. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Felix Leiter, um, we covered Bernie Casey, didn't we, in the Leiter episode? I think we. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Connery wanted a lighter that was memorable because he he said that the all the previous uh, lighters weren't memorable. Other cast, so we've got uh, as you said, Rowan Atkinson was added, added in, um, playing Nigel Small Fawcett in what is essentially a precursor to Johnny English, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be a young Johnny. He also played that same character in um, Hot Shots. One or two, part deux. God, that is good knowledge. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? he basically, it's just one of his three characters, isn't it, that you can play? <laughs> well, I don't know why he's got a speech impediment. It doesn't add anything. It's a very, very large performance, isn't it? Mm, it is, yeah. Um, especially when uh, 
Connery tells him to use the natural cover and he does that ridiculous Mr. Bean. He's basically playing Mr. Bean at that point, hiding behind the pillars. Um, Edward Fox uh, plays M, as we covered in the M episode. A uh, slightly different way he of playing it to Bernard Lee's version that we saw. Um, and they really lean heavily on um, how many cuts have been made, don't they? There's a lot, of, a lot of nods to the the finances. Yes, yeah. Um, which again follows through when with Q, um, who is called Algernon, played by Alec McCowan. Um, it, a, a very different to Desmond Llewellyn's portrayal. Um, he, he says he hopes there'll be plenty of gratuitous sex and violence. Um, in what I think is is a nod to the official Eon Bond films. Um, yes. I, I, you know, what I really like about the Q scene in this one is 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 Q's lab feels very real. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's not. It's just like it's a working lab. You can see he's actually doing stuff. Um, yeah, it feels like a working uh, environment, whereas mm. the other ones just feel like sound stages, don't they? But um, what are you talking about? What about the the one in the Spy of Me, where uh, <laughs> it's in a pyramid or something? <laughs> um, I actually like the. Um, the relationship between this Q and Bond as well. Like he just really likes him and it's it's just a friendly at work conversation. Yes. Um so yeah, that that's the that's the cast. Crew's a tricky one on this one because normally when we do these specials, when we're talking about the films, there's a lot of crossover. So you say, Oh, here's so and so obviously he was in he, he was involved in directing this one and you can sort of form these links why they've chosen that person for the film and why the film is the way it is but obviously the, the crew in this one is all is all new so um you've mentioned quite a few of them already so obviously the director of Kirshner, um he there's not many films he's famous in but there's a big link between a lot of the crew that worked on this film um so the main films that he worked on were empire strikes back never say never again obviously and robocop 2 um right. so you can see there empire strikes back is a pretty big one to be involved with um, we've already mentioned Jack Whittingham and Lorenzo Semple Jr. Um, and also you mentioned Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenese as well. So, um, yeah, you ticked off a lot of these. Uh, obviously, McClure is producer and Schwartzman was a producer as well. Um, Schwartzman, I don't know how much you know about Schwartzman, but he um, two films that he's most famous for working on are Where the Heart Is and Field of Dreams. Interesting. It's quite quite interesting. There's a few a few other people that a couple of other people that are probably worth mentioning. Uh, one is Vic Armstrong's back. He's stunt coordinator. I'll never say never again. So there's there's finally an actual Bond link. Um, yes. To the to this film, so they managed to get him involved. I, I probably I imagine it's probably easier to get a stunt coordinator than get somebody who's sort of creatively associated with it. Um, it's probably quite hard to get some of the the Bond stalwarts to be involved. I think they I think they did try. But a lot of them felt it would it would. Uh, they, did tr- they did try to get a lot. They wanted of them. to yeah, get but- Peter Hunt, I think, to direct at one point. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but Vic, Vic Armstrong, they managed to get probably because he's more of a technical what, technical guy, so it's not really as as, as big, and it doesn't really affect him that much. It's he's he's just for hire, really. Um, and another guy who was involved is the second unit director. That was Roy Button. Now Roy Button is um, he's done a lot of films, but he did. All of the Star Wars films, I think. Yeah, Return of the Jedi, Empire Strikes Back. Might not have done the first one. Uh, but he also did Superman um, and 
uh, Rage of the Lost Ark, uh, Gandhi, loads of, you can see the link there. There's, there's yeah. some big stuff, Superman 2. Um, so apart from those guys, there's not really, there's not really anyone worth mentioning because they're all sort of secondary ones that don't really have any relationship to the Bond films. But um, yeah, that's the, that's the crew that they amassed for the film. Yeah, so uh, in a break from what we know from other Bond films, this one was shot at Elstree Studios, and um, so that's where pre-production was done for this movie. Um, and it began uh, actually began shooting in the south of France on the 27th of September 1982, and they filmed uh, Sean Connery in a casino. So a great way for him to come back, I guess. Uh, also in the south of France, they shot the motorbike chase and the interiors for Largo's Middle Eastern home. Um Palmyra um, but uh, interestingly this film was mired with issues behind the scenes um, now the list is endless um, but uh, apparently Irving Kirshner was difficult to work with and would often like to improvise and he'd improvise whole action scenes and sequences that would require great setups and was just very very difficult to uh to, to pin him down apparently the script was a total mess and was co- constantly changing as well that's why you've got clement and um frenet on on set um you've got connery um who was basically just furious with everything uh, i think he felt when he finally got to shoot this film that he'd been waiting so long to do and made had so many promises made to him felt like he'd been let down on nearly everything um and so he was he was just really really uh, upset with 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 schwartzman in particular um and schwartzman in turn was absolutely terrified of sean connery and they didn't like to be in the same room together um so yeah it was just a just a total nightmare and i think connery saw kirshner as a, a bit of an amateur as well um so there was a lot of tension on set um other locations so for legal reasons they kept most of the action in the bahamas um and that was so that you know it could be argued that it was a remake and not a sequel which was part of the issue um and the production moved there in november 1982 um the second unit had already been there shooting their underwater stuff um but apparently they'd been there for quite a while but when they arrived and looked at a lot of the um uh the dailies for the underwater sequences they basically decided that the double that they'd used for sean connery was completely unconvincing apparently he's a really skinny like weedy guy and looked nothing like short this six foot two sean connery so um they had to scrap a lot of footage and it all had to be reshot um then after the bahamas they went back to elstree um to shoot on shoot on sound sound stages um there was some location work at waddesden manor in buckinghamshire that's the casino and also also luton who uh, which stood in for Shrublands, which is just down the road from me, so I might have to pay that a visit. Um, Connery later returned to the Bahamas to shoot additional material, and there was second unit work, which was also being done in Spain, and that's the stuff that Vic Armstrong shot with the horse jumping off the castle wall, um, which is quite an, uh, quite an alarming stunt, I think, but um, I'm sure you'll talk about a bit more about that now. Yeah, so in terms of, and this is a problem, I don't know if you two have encountered this, finding details that we used to on the eon produced bond films is way easier um yeah this was quite difficult and so i'm gonna give a shout out to another podcast actually in terms of uh the stunts on this film so it is a podcast called behind the stunts and they covered never say never again in great detail so i would recommend um if you're really interested i'm going to give a brief overview but if you're really interested go and listen to their episode of that but um 
yeah, so Vic Armstrong was stunt coordinator, and um, that horse, uh, the horse stunt, quite amazing how they did it, really, because I've always thought and watched it, and like, there's no way they did that. There's no way the horse, they've thrown a horse into water. Ridiculous. But they did. Um, the horse was actually trained over months to be able to, like, they started gradually, and then they, they make it higher and higher. Because when the film was released... It got a lot of backlash from RSPCA and a lot of animal welfare um, organisations. They were concerned about the the horse, but it was it was done in complete safety. The horse was fully trained. The humane uh, American Humane Association were present there. But there's there's a clip on YouTube, um, but courtesy of behind the stunts. If you have a look at that, um, and they used like a, a guide point. It's like a, a shoot where they shoot straight into the water and then the camera is above it um, to get that. But uh, yeah, the, the horse goes into the water and uh, and just swims off and it had been trained to do that. Uh, in terms of other stunts, I mean, there's the, that, the stunts are few and far between, to be honest, in this. Not like the, the Bond films we're used to. Um, the bike chase is a, a standout uh, point, though, and um, that was actually shot with a camera on the helmet of the si- of the person on the bike. It's it's quite a good stunt. It reminded me of uh, a a bit of No Time to Die in Matera, the the start of that. Hmm. Um, be interesting if they did take any pointers from Never Say Never Again. <laughs> Another stunt. Uh, oh, so Rocky Taylor is a, is a um, he got a Guinness World Record actually because he played he doubled for two Bonds in the same year. So yeah. he doubled for Roger Moore in Octopussy and then Connery in Never Say Never Again. Um, and I think that's. You know, you referenced the uh, the stuntman that was too skinny to play Connery. Yeah. I think this is where they brought Rocky Taylor on board. I think that's why. Um, because he's he's got a, a bigger frame. And also, so Connery was doing some training for uh, the fight scenes and he got Steven Seagal on board. Uh, yes. To help him brush up on on his his skills. So I didn't know that Sean Connery was already, he was a black belt in karate did you know that no so yeah he said uh i got hold of Stephen, and we had this training in the building where i had an apartment and he was really very good and everything and i got a little cocky because i thought i knew what i was doing because the principle is it's defense so it's a pyramid and i got a bit flash so he got flash and then he went to the doctors in 1995 (laughs) bear in mind this is 1983 and he, it was discovered that he'd broken his wrist. Oh, God. But, so he'd been walking around for 12 years with a broken wrist. Oh, because of Steven Seagal? Because of Steven Seagal, yes. God, I'd love to have seen that fight. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, there's not many other standout stunt that's, it's to me. Is there any that I've missed? They're the big ones, aren't they? They're the big ones, yeah. Coffee, medium sweet. Two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? (laughs) 
well, moving on to the music, uh, we talked a little bit about them trying to get hold of um, the big names. So they did try and get John Barry to, to join in, but he was obviously very loyal to Eon, so said no. Uh, obviously, it's, it's probably a big risk for for somebody like Barry to get involved because obviously it's so intrinsic to the to the Bond style. I think it would have massively helped if they did have John Barry to do the, the sound, but obviously they couldn't get couldn't get that. Um, they also tried to get James Horner. Um, he was apparently the first choice to to do the music because uh, they were, uh, the producers were impressed with Star Trek II Wrath of Khan that he'd done. Interesting. Um, yeah, but he was unavailable. And uh, they apparently Schwartzman said that Sean Connery vetoed him, didn't want him to do it. So uh, so eventually it was written um, by Michael Legrand, um, who he, it's an interesting score. Um, <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Appar- yeah, and apparently... He, he used to be a jazz pianist, so there's a lot of jazz stylings to it, um, which don't necessarily work or f- seem a bit weird in a lot of um, a lot of cases. Uh, people said that the uh, the soundtrack was uh, anachronistic and misjudged, bizarrely intermittent, and the most disappointing feature of the film. Um, probably quite accurate there um, in some in some uh, in some areas. It definitely. I think if there's any area of the film that jars, it's the music because, you know, this we talk about how there's certain things that you need in a Bond film to make it work and for consistency. And one of those is the consistent music that you get with Bond films. You always have the same sort of musical cues that come at the same, the right times. There's certain songs that play. It doesn't have any of those. And you're kind of expecting it at some points and it doesn't happen. I'm sure somebody has edited it and put oh, on. There's loads, yeah. Yeah, it's loads you can watch um, with the um, with the bomb theme on it. Yes, I remember a, a friend of ours did that with uh, the a, the new A team because that doesn't have the A team music on most of the films. So <laughs> put that on. Um, so yeah, the um, the main song uh, was written by Legrand. Um, Never say never again. Had lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, and um, it was performed by Lani Hall. Um, but Lani Hall wasn't the first choice. They did actually want Bonnie Tyler to do it, but um, she declined because she didn't like the song. Uh, there was another song made by uh, Phyllis Hyman um, who recorded a song, but uh, that never passed the, the test. So um, they ended up with a Lani Hall version. But yeah, I think the, the song itself, uh, it's all right. It's a bit sort of flat, isn't it? Not really much to it. doesn't really have any heart to it. doesn't really build up into any way. It's a little bit melodious. Um, but I, I would I would agree with that that assumption that the music is probably one of, if not the most disappointing parts of the film that really does cause a problem when you're watching it. To, it just shows, it makes, instantly makes you think this isn't a Bond film. But it also doesn't make you think this is an action film. It's so, mm. it's just so weak. The music in yeah. this film just never... It's not comedic, even. It's it's nothing. It's, it's just it just sort of plods along and it's backing music. And it's it not just, even. It doesn't even try to do a John Barry like an homage or anything. No. no. Well, I, I imagine that uh, there's a lot of things in this film that try and move away from the Eon style. You look at the some of the characters like M and um, some of the other people in it, and they're they're obviously trying to distance themselves a bit from the Eon style. But the music, you can't. Like if that's what they were trying to do, it, it's a stupid idea because you you can't stop the change the music because instantly, like the action scene music is just 
so slow and boring. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. so it's yeah, it's so lame. I um also yeah. think that the the song gets lost and because it's not on the uh, Morris Binder titles, it gets lost, yeah. completely lost. So not only is I'm, you know fair enough, we've got we've got average Bond songs in the Eon films, but yeah. you've got the titles to sort of support it. I think the Never Say Never Again theme tune is like somebody trying to sing a Bond song, like your mum singing a Bond <laughs> song. Who can't quite remember how it goes, and just repeats the same line over again, and it just it's just nonsense. But that's it. They just say never say never again over and over again in different ways. It's it's just awful. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about the film itself. What do you what what do you think of uh, of Never Say Never Again? How do you think it compares to Thunderball? I mean, it's it's a bad if you if you're viewing it from the point of view of a film, not associating it with Bond, just going, is it a good film? I think there's some redeemable qualities. I like Connery. I like the angle they've taken with Connery. I think it's the right angle. I think Connery's quite likable in it. He's got a few scenes where you go, oh, that's quite nice. Is that it's a nod to the fact that he's older. It's a nod to the fact that he was Bond. So I think there's some nice elements to that. So I think when you judge it on sort of an objective way and watch it from the point of view that this guy used to be Bond, it's sort of a nice nod. If you didn't know anything about Bond and you watched that film, it's a bad film. It's like bad actors in it. There's no chemistry between a lot of the people. It just, a lot of it doesn't work and it falls flat. It just goes on for a long time and there's not a lot to it. Oh, you dodged the question. Nice. What was the question? Thunderball. Compared to Thunderball. <laughs> oh, uh, I I like Thunderball. Right again, you've dodged I, the question. <laughs> I I I think it's far inferior to Thunderball. Yes. Just because it's not a Bond film, I don't think it, I don't think it can be classed as a Bond film from the, the the context of it. And it, yeah, I still think Thunderball is a good film from the point of view that it's got some nice elements to it. It's fun. I don't think this film's fun. I don't like Thunderball. I prefer yeah. this. I think we all know that. Yeah, I prefer, I prefer this. However, I just don't think the story, regardless if it's this or Thunderball, is that interesting. I think that's part yeah. of the problem. Yeah, it falls flat, doesn't it? A lot of the stuff, like this, it's just stupid things. Like the the bit with the, they have the computer game fight. <laughs> Painful. There's literally no. It's what he's going to get electric, electric shock. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. There's no peril, not, is there? There's no peril, and it's just stupid. Mm. It's like even at that time, I imagine people watching that going, "That's pretty rubbish." There's it's also not a bit very they, technologically advanced. There's a bit in the arcade where they walk through a, a, a video game arcade as well, which just to me doesn't doesn't seem like something you'd get in a James Bond film. It just doesn't have the glamour. Well, um, they're trying to they're trying to turn it into. An 80s film, aren't they? Like, modernise it in an 80s way, but you can't do that. The other 80s, fil- 80s Bonds don't modernise it based on mod- like culture. It's not about computer games and stuff. It's just set in the 80s, whereas Ooh, this is drawing attention to... A view to a kill. It's about microchips. Yeah, but there's no computer games with them having a fight with them. No. What, what do you like about the film, Brendan? I echo uh, what Wheatley said about Connery. I like... The version of Bond that Connery is playing 
I think it's uh, much more genuine than the version he was playing in Diamonds Are Forever. I thought he, he looked disinterested and tired in, in Diamonds Are Forever. And I know it, he, he had problems on the set of this, but it doesn't come across. Um, yeah. I, he, he looks quite... He looks fresh-faced in, a, in an older way. Mm. Like, he looks yeah. happy. He looks... He's got a bit of a, you know, a bit of charm about him, mm. but he's always no, it's always knowing that he's older. Yeah, but he knows that, and that's the beauty of it. Where, and then where you compare it to Roger in Future Kill, who doesn't know he's old. Yeah, well, I think it, they handled it, him being old much better than the the Eon yeah. ones did with Roger Moore. Actually, yeah, yeah. Um, I I'll tell you a few things I like. I like um, yeah, Fatima Blush. I think she's great in it. Mm-hmm. As discussed, I think her costumes seem to have come from a completely different movie. Um, and I will say that the costuming throughout this movie, I think, is pretty poor, except when it comes to Fatima Blush. Um, I think Connery ever really looks the part as Bond in his clothes. There's some weird clothing going Vest on. Vest and pants. Vest and pants on a bike. Yeah, and the dungarees. <laughs> um, and he wears that jacket towards the end. I just don't really like that. And also, I like Klaus Maria Brandauer as um, Largo. Um, but, but he's not as me- memorable as Thunderball Largo, even though he's he a better actor that, and does a better yeah, performance. He's not scary, is he? He's not, no, he's not a major threat. In fact, the, the age thing is a problem because they probably worked on the principle. You know, he's young, he's powerful, he's a supervillain, but he just seems like inept in comparison to Connery. Connery's just like looking at him like what. And again, the costuming for him goes doesn't do enough. It just looks so casual. To, mm. uh, you want a bit of pantomime with your with your villains. And I just don't think you get that with um, um, with with Largo here. But well, you do with a little bit with Blofeld. But he's so underused. He might might as well not be in it. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But I like. I, I, I do like the um, over makeuping of of Connery in some scenes, like when he's taking off that motorcycle helmet. Yeah. And he just so much makeup. That night, early nineteen eighties makeup, where they probably didn't quite know how to put makeup on a man um, <laughs> who was a bit older, and it just looks a little bit like his sort of boy George. And the 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 hair piece is terrible as well. If you thought it was yeah. bad in Diamonds Are Forever or You Only Live Twice, yeah. I mean, it's like they're like uh, I don't know high budget ones compared to this rug that they've put on him um, yeah. in Never Say Never Again. Um, yeah. But I think the music's dreadful in it. Um, I quite like the use of the motorbikes. I like that. Um, yeah. mm. But it's just a very... One bit that always sticks out to me is being a bit problematic as well is where... I don't know why, why it happens, but Largo tries to sell um, Domino to Arabs. Right. Do you know, what, do you know which bit I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And they're like conducting this auction and then Connery comes in to, to rescue it. It's just so, I don't really like that bit. Um, but I really like Bernie Casey as Felix Leiter. I think he's great. What um, about uh, Bunny Penny? Money. Pointless. <laughs> Absolutely pointless. Very forgettable. Yeah. Free yeah. radicals. <sighs> but I mean, for me, I don't think it's, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as Thunderball. I don't mind Thunderball. I've, I think I've got issues with it. I, th- I think the final act of Thunderball has, it's just it's too slow it's too um it's too unformed and when when they by the time they get to bahamas it loses all momentum but um yeah but there's there's an element of thunderball which is 
and when you watch it when you're younger, it's 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 a really fun film. Yeah, it's just a fun film. Yeah, this isn't a fun film. Uh, this was out when I was a kid, and I at no point ever wanted to watch Never Say Never Again. I don't think. I imagine at some point my dad had it on in the room, and I just thought, "What is what is this?" Yeah, but his Bond is Connery's Bond. It lack, he lacks some of the menace that, that he had in those early films, and that's what I think is the difference between this and Thunderball. Where Thunder in Thunderball, when uh, I mean, he does some very suspect things in Thunderball, um, it, but it's kind of fitting for the era. But in this one, where he does the whole uh, massage thing with um, Domino, it's just uh, it's just very creepy. Um, oh, yeah. that yeah, that is that is very creepy. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, if, Roger Moore. Doesn't get involved with uh, BB Doll. No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't mind it. But for me, I mean, I know it's an official-ish Bond film. It just doesn't doesn't have the elements that I like from a Bond film. And therefore, I would choose Thunderball over this any day, I think. Um, right, let's have a look at what happened to the film when it came out. It were, The world premiere was held on the 6th of October 1983 in LA. And it took $9 to $10 million dollars. Um, in its first week, which made it the biggest autumn opening in movie history at that point and the biggest Bond oh. opening ever. So it was massive, especially in America. Um, Octopussy had opened earlier in the year. Uh, in the long run, Octopussy ended up earning more money than it did. Then Never Say Never Again. Octopussy took 187 million. Never Say Never Again took 160 million. So it was a commercial success, but not as big as the official Bond film or the Eon Bond film. And there was an option to make a sequel, but Connery at this point just was sick of it, absolutely sick of it, and it was never acted upon. So talking at the National Film Theatre to promote the film, this is a great quote, by the way, Sean Connery said about the film, I hate parasites. I hate incompetence. There's nothing I like better than a film that really works, providing you don't have to deal with all the shit that comes afterwards in terms of getting what you're entitled to. But when you get into a situation where somebody who is totally incompetent is in charge, a real ass, then everybody is a struggle. There was so much incompetence, ineptitude and dissension during the making of Never Say Never Again that the film could have disintegrated. What I could have done is just let it bury itself. I could have walked away with an enormous amount of money and the film would never have been finished. But once I was there, I ended up getting in the middle of every decision. The assistant director and myself really produced the picture so didn't hold back that's why he's promoting the film as well <laughs> by the yeah. way um uh, didn't hurt though did it no uh, roger ebert gave the star uh, the film three three and a half stars he said we visit exotic locations we survive near misses and bond spars with the evil woman and redeems the good one all basic but what makes never so never again more fun than most of the bonds is more complex than that for one thing there's the human element in the movie and that comes from klaus maria brandauer as largo the Times, they concentrated on uh, Connery being back as well. They said Connery is back looking hardly a day older or thicker and still outclassing every other exponent of the role in the good-natured uh, throwaway with which he parries all the sex and violence on the way. Time Out said the action's good, the photography's excellent, the set's decent, but the real clincher is the fact that Bond is once more played by a man with the right stuff. Civilization is safe in the hands of he who has never tasted quiche and who, on the evidence here at least can perform a very passable tango. So interesting that this, the mention of quiche there predates A View to a Kill, in which James Bond eats a quiche. 
Mm. Um, mm. Interesting <laughs> facts. <laughs> Space fact. Um, so, and then just finally, writing in The Observer, Philip French noted that this curiously muted film ends up making no contribution of its own and inviting damaging comparisons with the original hyperconfident Thunderball. So on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 70% rating um, from critics, but just a 37% audience score. So I think it says a lot about the movie. Yeah, people are idiots. That's what it says. <laughs> Um, so McClory's done. He's 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 made his remake. Is he finished? Do you think he's finished there? No, he's not. He carries on. So in the late eighties, um, nineteen eighty nine, he brings back the Warhead script, and uh, he changes the name of the project to Atomic Warfare. And um, this is where he tries to get Pierce Brosnan on board. Brosnan had just missed out on uh, on Bond because of the Remington Steel uh, problems with his contract. Um, and he also approaches Timothy Dalton as well. But the project doesn't really get anywhere. Um, it's, it's difficult to get it off the ground. Um, is, this, is this animated? No, I know there is. there was talk of an animated version as well or an, or an animated series. Yeah, because I couldn't find any any more about that, but... I yeah. assume it was the same sort of uh, same sort of deal. It's the same script anyway, isn't it? Um, yeah. And then in the 90s, further plans to adapt the Thunderball story. Um, and this one was called Warhead 2000 AD. Oh, God. Um, uh, wanted Timothy Dalton to be on board, um, but also was approached uh, Liam Neeson. Uh, he, he declined it. Yeah, so, you know, still trying to get further remakes made and off the ground. Um, but there were, you know, problems with the the rights returned. Yeah, so you mentioned Warhead 2000. That was the start of discussions with Sony Pictures. Um, and at the time, Sony owned the rights to Casino Royale. So they saw owning the Thunderball rights as the op- an opportunity to, to really have a bit of oomph when it came to the James Bond universe and, and almost set up their own uh, MCU, if you will, for for Bond. Um, but, uh, th- yeah, they, they went through discussions for this. And, in fact, they, um, on, in 1997, in October, um, t- uh, two months prior to the release of Toronto Dies, they officially announced that the film uh, was going to be released. Um, and, and as a remake of, of Thunderball, but that was not to happen. Yeah, Sony was very bullish uh, in its um, in its move to uh, um, yeah set up its own Bond universe and, and, and announcing it before Tomorrow Never Dies was a real dick move on their behalf. Um, and this was led by this guy called John Kelly, who we'd mentioned before had been the executive consultant on on Never Say Never Again, and he'd gone to Sony. Um, uh, from MGM um, and uh, he obviously knew the, the situation with, um, with 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 the Thunderball scripts and what have you and it would be the downfall of this uh, of this of this power play between the two studios so um, in February 1998 Kevin McClory launched a lawsuit to prove that he was the co-creator of the cinematic bond 
he was claiming that the movies wouldn't be the same without the work that he had done with Ian Fleming in 1960, whatever, before the on the book of Thunderball, he felt that he was instrumental into what, what we got in the movies. And so that was that was rumbling on. And then in July 1999, a judge granted MGM an injunction to stop Sony from developing a script for its own Bond film based on the McClory materials. Um, and there were appeals, but uh, an MGM claimed that John Kelly had been guilty of sharing proprietary secrets. And it was that part of the, the situation that ended up being the downfall of, uh, of Sony's move here. So in March 2000, I think, uh, a settlement was made with Sony declaring itself out of the James Bond business. Um, it compensated MGM with $5 million out of court and uh, obtained the rights to Casino Royale. Sony uh, um, going in the other direction to Sony were the rights to Spider-Man. So uh, MGM relinquished its claim on the Spider-Man series. um, And so they sold the rights to Sony for for 10 million. So now MGM has Casino Royale, Sony has Spider-Man, and they're both able to proceed with their own versions of those. So this left basically McClory with nowhere to go. He was completely frozen out at this stage because the Thunderball scripts are useless without the Casino Royale situation at, at Sony. He, uh, at this stage, announced that a film Warhead 2001 would be made and would produce, would be produced in Australia. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> but in March 2000... The judge ruled that Kevin McClory had left it too long to claim his co-creation case and that he had been awarded the rights to Thunderball in 1963 and that he should have, if he thought he was the co-creator of Bond, he should have acted on it before then. So that case was then thrown out. And that is pretty much the end of Kevin McClory's battle with Eon to make uh, James Bond films. Yeah, so he died uh, in November 2006. He was 82. Um he died in Dublin, and that meant when he died, the rights to Thunderball, the character Blofeld, and Spectre were passed on to his estate. So then seven years later, November 15th, 2013, the family of Kevin McClory finally agree to sell the rights to MGM and Dan Jack. Um, were you able to find a figure because it's 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 a it's a big substantial figure isn't it no i don't know but um i reckon it's probably in the tens of millions it's got to be hasn't it it's gonna be yeah but who would have paid that money like would it have been um would eon have paid that would mgm have paid that who knows yes it's it's tricky isn't it to know where that came from but this meant that the agreement put an end to all of this that that Rivalry that had been going on for five decades, and it meant that uh, 2015 Spectre could could be could be made. Oh, shame! <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's the Blofeld stuff, isn't it? And the, and the, the use of the name Spectre that is the it, it, it is what is um, it, it it opens the door for, doesn't it? And where, yeah. how that worked out, um, we'll talk about later. But um, yeah, I mean, it's quite an amazing story, really. Um, and how it's it a ridiculous aff- story yeah how it affected bond uh, or the bond films over its that 50, those 54 years there's so many ways um and if you think like if it hadn't been hanging over it like what would have changed um well my big thing is if eon would have had 
Blofeld and Spectre, it might not have survived had they have just kept kept using it throughout the Roger Moore years. Yeah, yeah. might have been really boring. Might have been like a, just a consistent, boring story that they keep going mm. back to the same thing. Because yeah. they had yeah, to probably, come up probably... with new new villains. Yeah, yeah. so McClory's probably helped them out along the way, yeah. especially with the Daniel Craig stuff. The Starks, mm-hmm. you know, Casino Royale not having access to Spectre, it probably plays from it. I always think that they went a bit... They, as soon as they got the rights, they started thinking, right, got to get Spectre in a film, got to do a film about Spectre. They should have held off mm. and just done Spectre properly. Yeah. Always annoys me they got so excited by it. Quick, do Spectre. But we haven't mentioned Spectre in two films. Get him in. <laughs> it it was the really was the undoing of the, the, of the Daniel Craig era, I think. Yeah. Um, and like I, I totally agree with you, Brendan. I think the fact that they couldn't use Blofeld throughout the seventies and eighties and nineties just opened the door for for for, yeah. for reinvention, didn't it? It mm-hmm. was moving away from that idea of Spectre and, and Blofeld um, because it would I think have been ridiculous in in the Roger Moore area as well. It would have been an awful depiction of Blofeld. Yeah, it would have been that guy in the wheelchair all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, we do get some interesting Blofeld likes, don't we, in, in the Roger Moore era. You've got um, Stromberg and Drax almost to a certain a certain extent. But um, yeah, I also think the way that, because it interesting that it affected how Blofeld was used before Thunderball as well, because um, they there was obviously a big question mark hanging over Thunderball and how he's included. And that's why you get the shadowy version of Blofeld, don't you? And it's always, it's never mm. referenced as Blofeld. The best um, version of Blofeld. Yeah, the best version from yeah. the from Russia with Love version, I think. Yeah. So and then and then obviously it then then affected the the making of Thunderball itself, um, and that became a film which was, you know, a big hit, but had a lot of behind the scenes problems. Um, mm. And then and then obviously you've got how it affects Never Say Never Again and how that becomes such a key battleground in the in the war between John Connery's battle with Cubby. Yeah. Yeah, it's mad. I always just think McClory was clearly a man who had a lot of uh, an amazing ability to sort of get these things funded and get the right people involved with them. Think what he could have achieved if he'd just gone right. Okay, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to work on something good. He could have made an amazing film series, but it's just it's just strange psychologically. It's a very strange obsession. It's actually a, re- a really quite a sad story to waste that much of your life on on something be so fixated on one thing because like you say he, yeah. he was an intelligent man that you know had had he, he had, had ideas and, you know he could have made he could have taken anything and turned it into you know an, 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 a different bond a new one he could have had like a harry palmer series or something like that that did really well he had the means he had yeah. the facilities to do it well flashman uh oh god imagine yeah that would have been perfect. But there's other characters Underwater. out there. It's so odd that he focused on it. It was fixated. That something yeah, must have yeah. happened with him and Fleming. Something really affected him, you know, clearly. Yeah, yeah. It, interesting that actually um, uh, McClory and Cubby were remained quite quite good friends through a lot of the, the all of this time. And isn't Cubby the godfather to one of McClory's kids? I think. Um, mm. So there was there was like there was some like friendly rivalry at the heart of it, but I think it just went on for so long that it just became such bad blood um, between them. Mm. Um, And the thing is, it's like when you when you're obviously we're talking about never seen ever again here. And that's like the the ultimate um, outcome of this situation. But when you look at the film, was it worth it? (laughs) 
Was it worth all the legal well, that's, bas- that's why I always think about this. There was, out of all the stuff that McClory did, there was no, even if they would did well, there was no good outcome at that point. Like, it wasn't suddenly going to go, the Eon films are crap. We're going to, like, McClory's the one to watch. It just wasn't going to happen, was it? It was such a shot in the dark to go, right, I'm going to make these films and they're going to be bigger and better than the Eon ones. It's, it's just, yeah. Imagine, like, somebody trying to make Harry Potter film now. Yeah. And compete with the other Harry Potter films. It just wouldn't happen. But the other thing is that he had such a limited... The rights that he had were so limited, he could only tread on that you know, that storyline. If he started to go in other angles, Eon yeah, had the rights for that. So it's like... Well, you it just must, Yeah, it must be a nightmare. Yeah. yeah. I, We're going to set it in the desert. No, it's got to be underwater. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah. I think there are other parts of Thunderball they could have explored. I think their origins of Blofeld could have been more explored... Um, mm. As and could be claimed to be part of the original Thunderball scripts, um, so I think there were, might have been other ways of doing it. But it's just sad that in the end, it took his death for his family then to benefit from what they had um, yeah. possession yeah, yeah. of. You know, he could have sold them to Eon, and whether they would have bought them for as much when he was alive, but at least he would have been able to benefit from it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in fact, all he all he had was just this legal case that was backwards and forwards and announcing Warhead, Warhead 2000, Warhead 2001. Just like, geez, it's such a sad yeah. Yeah. Uh, situation. Um, but yeah, uh, I just want to thank uh, AJ Chowdhury, the author of the book, um, Some Kind of Hero, who I spoke to at length about Never Say Never Again and gave me some really good pointers in terms of the... Um, of the of the um the time frame of of this all and how it worked um but it it is a completely unique story and i was trying to think of it, if there are any other examples in pop culture where you've got these sort of bifurcated rights to the same ip and the only thing i could come up with that was close is how you've got quicksilver in age of ultron and in x-men <laughs> <laughs> very very similar do you know what I mean, though? It, you've got rights to make the same character. Um, yeah, there's probably a load of crossovers in Marvel, isn't there? You've got loads of issues with Hulk? character what about Hulk? and stuff like that. Yes, that was another Hulk, one I was yeah. thinking of. Because mm, the, yeah. the solo films, they, Marvel can't make solo films for the Hulk, can they? No. No. Spider-Man? Yeah. Spider-Man uh, is, is, is a similar-ish sort of situation, isn't it? But they yeah. came to but an agreement. Yeah, but there's nothing that spans the whole legacy of a franchise that's been going for 40 years. No. I wonder if the the Spider-Man situation will ever resolve itself in a way, in a meaningful way. Probably not. Doesn't seem like there's any reason for that to happen for either side. They're both... You know, it's not like it's not really a legal battle, is it? It's more like just a discussion on how to use them. Mm. Yeah. Well, I didn't get many three-word reviews for it, but then, to be fair, I didn't put the call out for the three-word reviews um, too um, long before we started recording. But a good one I got from Adrian Hurley was James Bond Senior. Uh, yes. Yeah, like that. Yes. And yep. Berend Ber- Ber- Quant said, beats Austin Powers. So, I mean, I don't know if was I agree it? with that. <laughs> <laughs> but where do you guys rank it? Um, I know that uh, I asked you to send the, your rankings over beforehand, but um, Brendan, yours was uh, quite high, I thought. Did you? But what what did I put it above? You put... finger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brendan, you ranked it... So we've done 14 James Bond films now. 
and you ranked it at number nine in the in the fourteen mm. Bond films, above for your eyes only, a view You're to a, a kill. Perplexing man, aren't you? What's that? He's a perplexing man. Yeah, he just doesn't like Roger Moore, does he? Above a view to a kill, above diamonds are forever, above Moonraker, and above, of course, Casino Royale. Uh, Wheatley, you listed it. Uh, you said you pref- you put it at number ten. Uh, above Moonraker, License to Kill, and Die Another Day, and Casino Royale 67. You're completely wrong about License to Kill, but um, that's the beauty of these things. And me, um, I... Come on, edge of my seat here. Edge of your seat, yeah. I, I put it second to bottom. I'm really sorry. I love... Wow! It. I, do, I, do, I, do, I do like Never Say Never Again, but for me, it just is not... It just doesn't have what I need from a Bond film. Oh, we have um, an Eon fanboy. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Well, <laughs> I like I like Sean Connery in it, and I will like I do like seeing Sean Connery as James Bond, but it just doesn't live up to everything else. I like the John Barry music. I like the the title sequences. I like all those elements, and this doesn't just doesn't have everything. Um, the the reason I I put it where I did is because I think that the films that are put, that are below it, Moonraker, Die Another Day, License to Kill, I think. Those films have so much the ability to be good. Like they had so much that they could use that would make those films good, but they messed it up um, and they made bad films. Never Say Never Again didn't have any of that stuff, and I think it pulls it off better than those films. That that those films really annoy me because of that. So I've, I could sort of give Never Say Never Again a bit of credit because they didn't have the means that those films did. That's a good argument, I think. That's uh, that's mm. it. That's interesting. I just don't think, um, yeah, um, it's that's an interesting way of looking at it. Anyway, in terms of the official rankings, it doesn't. Never say never again. Doesn't trouble the top, and so our top ten at the moment is Goldfinger at number one, From Russia with Love, Goldeneye, Casino Royale, Doctor No, Live and Let Die, License to Kill, For Your Eyes Only, A View to a Kill, Diamonds Are Forever, and Die Another Day at uh, number eleven. 12 is Moonraker and number 13 is Never Say Never Again. And bottom, obviously, still bottom, Casino Royale 967. But what is really interesting is that Diamonds Are Forever, Die Another Day, Moonraker and Never Say Never Again. They're actually all on equal footing in the ranking um, in the way that we do the weighted um, uh, Mm. score. So it's clear that there is a low that's our low tier and um that's they're all sort of within that realm uh diamonds mm. are forever die another day moonraker and never say never again um god that'd be a that'd be a fun afternoon what watching <laughs> those for yeah <laughs> yes i'm sure it would be but yeah so that's the ranking and i guess that, that just about wraps up the never say never again episode can we please say never again never <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never again. I'm not going to watch that again. <laughs> um, and you're also not going to be back on the podcast again. No. So, well, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> you're, big, you're a very busy man. I appreciate that you've managed to do for so long, to be honest. So, um, yeah, the podcast will remain uh, the same, just without Mr. Tom Wheatley. So, um well, you're probably going to be quite happy with that, with the rankings. Imagine next week you'll <laughs> whack license to kill up a few. Yeah, I don't know what we'll do about the rankings. We'll have to have a talk about that, Brendan. But um, I'll still send mine in. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, uh, thanks for all your hard work over the last, what is it, 18 months or so. Um, mm. but you will be missed. I hopefully we'll be able to tempt you back for more podcasts in the future. <sighs> Which ones have we got? There's got to be a film that I really want to do. 
Well, I thought you'd come back for Spy Love Me, but you're away, aren't you? So, um, yeah. Quantum. I'd probably rather do an awful one. Quantum. Quantum of Solace. Done. Do Quantum. Nice. Yeah, I'll be up for Quantum. Yeah, I mean, upcoming episodes we've got. Next will be No Time to Die. And then we've got Octopussy, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Quantum of Solace. And then, like, that's further down the line, Skyfall Spectre, Living Daylights. And all the T's. That's going to be a hell of a run, Brendan. Well, I'll definitely be back for Zed. Yes. Zorin. Come back for Max. Zorin, Zorin, yeah. Yeah. Just two hours on Zorin. Um. But yeah, if people want to um, email the show and say uh, thank you to Mr. Wheatley, how do they get a hold of us? Podcast at jamesbondsatoz.co.uk And if they want to get us on social media, Brendan? At jamesbondsatoz on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And uh, thanks to everyone who's supported us on coffee so far. Our coffee page is at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbondsatoz where you can support the show by buying us a coffee for less than the price of a beer, three pounds. Um, you can do that as a one-off or recurring payment, which people are doing now. So we really appreciate that. It helps us to keep the podcast going. Uh, means that we will be able to uh, give Mr. Wheatley a, a nice send off. And um, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, any final p- uh, parting words, Wheatley, any words of wisdom that you want to share with the world? <laughs> On Bond or just in general? Uh, I mean, either. Just check out James Bond Jr. when you get a chance. <laughs> Some great stuff there. Some great stuff. We'll bring you back. For just the... Interesting to see where you rank it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Without further ado then, uh, it just remains to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week, but Mr. Wheatley won't. Mm, but Mr. Wheatley may return. <laughs> Tease. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. Things have been awfully dull around here. Bureaucrats running the old place, everything done by the book. Can't make a decision unless the computer gives you the go-ahead. Now you're on this. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so too. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.